The northern cardinal, for many of us, is that first blaze of color after a long winter. They begin to sing in the late winter, early spring, and you you see that male cardinal dashing across your yard to take up a post and, and sing its brilliant whistled song. Good morning, and welcome to episode 407 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. I always think of 407 as the uh, the batting average Ted Williams wasn't good enough for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, today we resume our season preview podcast series. Uh, going from the bottom to the top of Pakoda's projected standings, we're getting pretty close to the top here. Uh, so we have come to the St. Louis Cardinals, and later in the show, Nick will be talking to Kevin Wheeler of 101 ESPN St. Louis. Uh, right now, we will be talking to another completely impartial member of the press, uh, a man who has covered Cardinals playoff games from the press box without emitting so much as a, a strangled yelp. Uh, he is Will Leach. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. So well, first off, before we get going, uh-huh. I'm pretty, I've, you know, I've, I've listened to the whole series. Like I'm, yes. a, I'm a big fan of you guys. I listen to all the shows. From Sochi. Uh, I was from check, Sochi. I was checking I know. The, the download stats. So I know was, that was, was your story checks out. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I, I have to say this is earlier than I thought we would be doing the Cardinals on this podcast. Yes, uh, I think, yes, Sam and I would agree uh, that if this were our, our personal ranking, we would probably be doing the Cardinals next week. But we have to go by what the system says. Uh, so I was looking at the Cardinals depth chart as I do before we do these things. And I try to pick out a, a weak spot that I can ask about. Uh, so I'm still looking for it. <laughs> I'm going to come up with it pretty soon. Backup, backup catcher. They've had some yes, pretty lousy backup catchers Worried about lately. Tony Cruz. Worried about uh, the eighth starter, possibly. Um, <laughs> is, is there anything on this roster that is uh, worrying you, that is keeping you up at night? Um, you know, to be honest, the catch, I, we joke a little bit like Molina is indispensable, really, for this team. Even when they struggled last year. It was that they had one stretch where they played poor last year, and it was exactly when Molina was was hurt. He was out for about a, like a week, a week and a half, and it was their worst stretch of the season. Like, like obviously that's that's a little bit of small sample size and uh, and and selective, you know, uh, examples. But uh, but they're really like they haven't even really even bothered to ever like they don't even really develop catchers. They're actually finally starting to try to do that again because they because they just Molina is so important and so valuable to them that they really don't even they're just like sure Jason Larue. Tony Cruz, like, 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 it, they really just don't really bother with a backup catcher. I mean, like, he, he, I mean, Cruz starts a game maybe every two weeks. <laughs> yes, like it's really kind of crazy. So, so Molina, uh, it affects him not only obviously uh, handling the staff, but like Molina can like totally hit now. So, uh, so there are there are all sorts of problems. To me, that's the one thing that that could make things really go wrong is if something happened to Molina. Yeah, I did a thing last year where I looked at the the. Players who had been on the roster all season but gotten the least playing time, and it was like all Lugies and Tony Cruz. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> poor Tony Cruz. But it is kind of strange because they have like double and triple redundancy at at seemingly every other position. If someone were to get hurt, they could plug in someone who most other teams would be pretty happy to have, except for that spot. Um, and and it was you know that that spot was shortstop until this year and you yes. know, I think I think that one of the things that was telling uh, was um, you know they obviously bring in Peralta and then bring in uh, bring in our, our Almidas I, I can never I forget how to say, how, how to say his first name yet uh, yeah. the new thing the Cubans Almidas I'm gonna call him Almidas because <laughs> it just sounds it's, it's rhythmic um, <laughs> but like that was the thing is that like shortstop was such a disaster no Pete Cosma affable enough fellow. Seems like a nice guy, uh, but uh, like watching him hit 500 times last year was was brutal. And they they basically carpet bombed the position in the offseason. They're like, okay, we cannot let that happen again. So uh, so getting Peralta and then and then signing uh, signing a guy that frankly I think a lot of people are pretty skeptical about the fact that he signed for such a small amount of money. Uh, I think there was originally like it was funny when one it's it's interesting how these things go when the Yankees said, oh no, we're actually not extra interested. All of a sudden that became okay. <laughs> Four years, eighteen million. Like the the price like dropped like dramatically once the Yankees were out, which is I guess only in the Cardinals' favor. So, um, 
Talking about Peralta, that was a move that um, I, I feel like that was a move that a lot of people noted. If, like, say, the Royals had signed him for that yeah. contract, but the Phillies had, it would have been probably mocked um, because that's what we do. We mock Phillies. Um, but when the Cardinals did it, we all found the reason that it made perfect sense and, and cheered, I guess. Do, do you feel like the Cardinals get a pass uh, for being the Cardinals? I mean, is there a move that they could make that we wouldn't find um, uh, a reason to, to, to find acceptable? Or is it just that they that their moves actually do all make sense and that Peralta, even though people were projecting him to get like two years and, and $18 million or whatever the going uh, you know rate is for, for steroids-implicated players— um, I forget where I was going with this. No, just the idea of the idea. Of, I agree. Like I think for the Peralta move is a great example of yeah, you're right because all the projections were a small amount and assuming and the Cardinals basically blew everybody away with their offer. Like I think he's going to end up being like the third or fourth most expensive player on the team this year, which is really kind of crazy when you see how much talent there is on the team. But that's one of the things I like uh, about Mozeliak is. Like that was a like that was the problem. Like it was very obvious in the off season. I, I I remember this in my essay, but like it was very obvious during the World Series. You saw like the top five hitters. Like Cardinals did they did fine. Like the, if you it's funny if you if you looked at the OPS for the the World Series OPS for Boston Red Sox Boston and the Cardinals during the World Series, one was David Ortiz at like eighty times what everyone else had, and the next five were all the top five hitters in the Cardinals order. Like they all actually hit fine, but Freeze had not did nothing, Jay did nothing, and Cosa particularly did nothing, and one things that like you know after spending you know all really someone would want as a fan of a team is for the general manager to understand to see what the rest of us are seeing be like okay those are clear problems of the team and acting swiftly to solve them and i kind of love that was what i loved about the peralta move even though yes i agree i think it was it was more than anyone thought he was going to get and it was funny how everyone was like yeah peralta's worth that much like almost <laughs> immediately after after they after they made that signing <laughs> but uh th- but that was the thing you know it's funny because like even the even the the Borjos trade, uh, uh, trading freeze uh, to get Borjos, even that trade, like Borjos is, you know, I mean, people like obviously people have always been excited by his talent to see what he can do, but you know, he's still even now he's still a little campy in camp again. Like like for another team, if they were to bring him in, and there'd be a lot of like concern trolling about his injuries, and uh, and you really didn't see that with the Cardinals. They're all just like, oh yeah, it was totally smart, and they got and they got a, a prospect with it. Like it feels when when you're in the place the Cardinals are right now. Every move is kind of perceived as gold, even if uh, it's not. Like, to be honest, I, I I can understand why people might have questions about the Matt Carpenter extension. Uh, Joe Sheehan has actually talked about that about how they almost maybe extended him too quickly, like they they, they still like they still could have waited another year and like and kept him in cheap. It's possible that you know that. That's a riskier extension than I think people are giving credit uh, are, are saying. But because it's the Cardinals, people are like, yeah, they know what they're doing. Yeah. So when we had Bill Bear on to talk about the Phillies, we asked him uh, to name the last Phillies move that he was uh, unambivalently uh, uh, in favor of. And so I guess the question for you would be the opposite. What what's the last made that uh, on impact you thought this this can't go well? This is a terrible move. Um, that's a good question. Let's see. Um... Let me mull on that one because it has been a while. <laughs> it has been a while, and uh, <clears throat> I think you know. It, it I really has been since, frankly, it's been since before Matheny got here, and uh, and I say that not to say that Matheny is just like oh, like you know, I don't think there's any notion that he even has a lot of say in these transactions. But that's kind of the point, is that like you know with. Really, it was the, probably the Rasmus trade. I think the Rasmus trade that the Cardinals made, which actually turned out wonderfully for the Cardinals. And mm. the, uh, but at the time, it was, you, you were trading this cost-controlled uh, center fielder for spare parts, <laughs> and all of whom were going to be gone after next year other than Chipsinski. And so, uh, or Scrabble, sorry. And so and so that was the thing. But the, th- the thing that's interesting about that is those were, those all felt like La Russa moves. And one of the things that's kind of fun about Mosaic, and the Cardinals have Cardinal fans have kind of an interesting relationship with La Russa because obviously he won two World Series for the Cardinals. That he he will be popular, but like he when he didn't choose to put a card his Cardinals hat, uh, he's not wearing a Cardinals hat in the Hall of Fame. He's wearing no hat, which is which is fine. It's a very Tony La Russa thing to do. He's a he's like a he's like an old Western gun, gunslinger. He's a, <laughs> he's like he's a he's a man with no hat. And but uh, no one was really that upset. Like La Russa. For all the, for I know everybody outside of St. Louis always disliked Larusa, but for what it's worth, we obviously he wanted to win all the time, so we were happy to have a manager that wanted to win all the time. But there were times it was clear that he was having say in transactions that 
you, since Moselak would have not wanted to do that. And it was funny, the day before Rasmus was, was traded, La Russa made, gave this interview, like, very very much with a lot of, listen, that kid's got to get his head on straight. We're not going to just put out people because they think they're great. Like, it was very obvious La Russa was giving him, like, the black mark of death. And then he gets traded the next day and for these spare parts. And, again, that did work out. But I think if you look back, no, no one thought that trade was a good trade. And it was very frustrating. It felt like something LaRusso was doing because he didn't like Rasmus rather than a, the, a smart move, smart uh, baseball move. So I think that was probably the last one. I think it's not coincidental that it's right before uh, LaRusso left. There's always Ty Wigginton. That's always my go-to. Oh, <laughs> not that that was any kind yeah. of crippling move. Yeah, yeah, you're, that, that, that actually is right. <laughs> that actually, that is the correct answer. I had actually blacked that out because, of course, they're still paying him this uh-huh. year, which is a nice touch. So, yeah, Wigginton would be a bad one. Though you, sit, I saw what they were trying to do there. Like they, they, they had a, they didn't know. They still were kind of squinting and thinking maybe he could play second in, in a pinch. They needed a right-handed bat off the bench. But uh, yeah, it, one thing I do like about that though is once it was clear it wasn't working. They didn't try to force it. He was like, okay, this, they cut him. Like there, there was something kind of efficient about that. that I think one of the things I, that, that's been great too is in the wake of, you know, like Pools leaving and now trading David Freeze. Like these are the two most popular Cardinals. And I think they've, they've been so uh, uh, kind of mer- uh, cold and calculating and almost ruthless about, uh, about some of those moves in a way that has worked out great. And that was the nice thing about Wiggins. And it was very obvious, okay, this is not happening. They can't do it. But, that, you know, a lot of times, you know, back in the La Russa day, he would get an extra three or four months just because he was a veteran presence. And they don't do that anymore. And that is, that is, that is a, nice, a nice kind of move. And it wasn't very much money, so you almost forget it. So I remember when we, when you and I talked and we were trying to preview the World Series and everyone was writing their playoff preview pieces and we were looking for ways to ding the Cardinals somehow, it was always Pete Cosma and the defense, I guess, was the other weakness. Um, but it seems like even that has been corrected this winter, at least to an extent, through, through addition by subtraction and addition by addition. Uh, this seems like maybe a, a team that can catch the ball now also. Yeah, you know, the, the only real issue, move, moving the Carpenter to third and giving Wong second, or Ellis, who also is a perfectly fine second baseman, mm-hmm. uh, that the infield is covered. There's still some issues in the outfield. I, I'm pretty curious to see. One, I think, very legitimate question. You know, I love that Mosellock... Uh, uh, stacks talent and, and you know he doesn't make a move because he just because there's an extra part and it worked out great like everyone wanted them to trade Matt Adams at the beginning of last year they didn't and inevitably Alan Craig got hurt and Adams came in and hit like crazy and everyone was so happy they had Adams that but now we're looking at a full season we're actually looking at Alan Craig playing right field and Holiday is fine he's getting worse because he's getting older so you're really asking for just to cover a lot of outfield space because Craig the worry is not not just that Craig doesn't have a lot of range but he tends to get hurt <laughs> like he tends to he, he's you, you can sense you wonder how much you can really trust putting Craig out there uh constantly in right field particularly with well you know we'll see what happens with Tavares but when eventually when Tavares comes up you feel like you have to put Craig back at first, and that might solve the defensive issue, but then you've got Adams again uh, uh, off the thing. So to me, until Tavares comes and takes one of those outfield spots, I feel like the outfield defense is going to be an issue, but the infield defense is a lot better. Uh, Carpenter's more na- he's off, it's his natural position to play third, so it makes sense having him there. And Wong is an excellent uh, defensive second baseman. It, people forget, you know, the because uh, they just remember from the World Series when he got picked off. The game before that, he made a terrific play that uh, kept them that kept the game tied uh, right before the 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 crazy play at third base that ended that game that made everyone so unhappy. Uh, Wong made a terrific play in that game, and so he's a really good defensive second baseman. He's starting to come around hitting. So yeah, to see to see that. Uh, that that defense that's a major issue they had that has been resolved with the exception. But we'll, I think that it's really going to be resolved when Tavares comes and takes over right, and then Craig and Adams kind of flip back and forth at first. Mm-hmm. So, did you expect to see some of the surplus moved in in some sort of trade this winter? Did you expect to see a Joe Kelly or a Lance Lynn going somewhere for a shortstop, or maybe one of the extra outfield first base types? You know, I didn't just because they didn't trade Adams last year. That was uh-huh. a logical thing for them to do last year. Uh, there was clearly there were teams that you know they they there was always the discussion of can they somehow mix Adams with a couple young pitchers and get Profar or something like that. Like you know, yeah. to, to, like try to find that sort of thing. The Tavares Profar thing was never going to happen. But they thought maybe if you know maybe if John Daniels is not feeling well. 
they can uh, they can get Matt Adams and a couple pitchers for for him. But they didn't make that. They didn't really even really offer Adams that much. And that to me pretty much secured signal signal what they were going to be doing this offseason, which was just stack and stack and stack and stack and stack. So yeah, I was not surprised they didn't make a trade. And that's to me, that's one of the things I really, another reason I really like the Peralta move is you know they actually have some payroll flexibility now that they didn't and would not have had if they would have signed Pujols. They actually have that now and they have they can go spend money. It's it, it you know this is the this is the old the old adage, but like money is weirdly cheaper than talent, and and the idea that all Peralta cost was money, and that was the fact that you could do that and still keep others get other guys around. I thought it was you could see a move like Peralta coming rather than trying to make a trade for one, just because they've proven that they'll they'll keep guys hanging around. Is it possible to hoard too much talent, or is it a case where if there's no real weak spot to upgrade, then it, it doesn't make sense to trade anyone? Yeah, it seems so. Like you know, it was funny because. Uh, there was a point where they had uh, they had eight starters, but then Garcia got hurt because that's what happens: is pitchers get hurt. And even now, like you know, you talk about all the pitching depth, but you know, it's 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 the the competition for the fifth starting spot seems it's coming down to Carlos Martinez and and Joe Kelly. They're both pitching well. It's starting to look like it's going to be Martinez, which is exciting. Uh, next, I picked I, Martinez I, in my reliever. Yeah, league. I've got Martinez. Yeah. Every, everybody everybody's got Martinez in a reliever league right now. And one in three Americans has Martinez in, in an effectively wild reliever league. No, I, I think he's I, honestly. I think they want him to get it. I think that they would rather you know they, they would remember they still would like to maybe someday transition they're still playing around with the idea of having rosenthal start you know not, not this year but like down the line like they really kind of appreciate that idea that they want these guys to be starters so you know i uh but i, so I think martinez is going to get that job which is great because honestly like i like joe kelly but really martinez is better <laughs> and, and i kind of want him to win that fifth spot and that's kind of the thing about the depth like yeah they have eight starters but I don't know if you really want Joe Kelly being uh, uh, being a rotation guy all year. I don't know if you really want Tyler Lyons being a rotation guy all year. Like you have depth. Uh, there's a ton of depth at pitching, but the you know pitching depth goes away really fast. <laughs> like you like these guys uh, are kind of a one more injury and we're back. You know, then all of a sudden there's five and then and something else happens or if someone else struggles, then you need to go find one. So the idea that that you have too much pitching, I really think particularly when it comes to the rotation, you really can't. And I think that's they've they've shown that. So do you feel any of that angst that fans get when they see a top pitching prospect uh, move to the bullpen and do so well that he, um, you know, you start wondering whether he's ever going to be a starter? Um, or are you confident that um, e- either the Cardinals will always have the depth that Rosenthal won't be needed or that eventually he, he will be there when he is needed? You know, they tend to do this right. You know, I think Rosenthal may be the exception just because, you know, he still don't, doesn't really have a third pitch. So like really like... He, he, they may keep him in the bullpen just because he's so specifically effective in that. And clearly, you know, it's obviously worked really well. But, like, when you look at, like, they've clearly transitioned stuff. Lynn was a reliever. Wainwright was a reliever. Waka relieved, like, uh, midway through last season. They've clearly shown that that's a transition that they're able to handle. And it's funny. I always think of all the teams that all the people that have been broken because <laughs> they never figured out how to, how to fix that. I'm very glad that like, I wonder if Joe Chamberlain could have been done right. If he'd have been in the Cardinals organization, because that's of, of all the things that they do, that is something I find consistently imp- uh, impressive. Uh, impressive is that they do figure out a way to get these guys. Uh, it works like, like to be able to transition. It's very strange to think that, Walker really was in the bullpen for like a good stretch in the middle of, of last year and then worked his way back up to pitching seven, eight innings in the playoffs and being fine. That's, you know, the, the Rangers have screwed people up doing that way. The Yankees, have, like smart organizations have screwed people up that, doing that way. And the Cardinals have had a lot of luck with it. And they, and they So they consistently do it. So I think Rosenthal may be the exception, to be honest. I think Rosenthal may be the exception just because he's so... He's been so immediately excellent that role, and it kind of, you know, he's not going to be pumping up at 99, 100 starting. And you, because you have all these other guys in that role, you can go ahead and in, in the rotation, you can probably go ahead and put Rosenthal and keep him there. But I think that's otherwise they're pretty good at transitioning over there. And I'm, I'm glad, like I'm glad they're going to try to get Martinez. I really think Martinez is going to win that fifth spot, and I, I'm glad. I'm glad. I don't, I don't, I don't want him to. You've got Mott coming back in in May. If he's fine, you've got that eighth inning guy, another guy that throws a hundred uh, in the bullpen. So I, I think you can make it work, and I and they've shown that they can. Okay, and so one last fantasy question that's actually masquerading as a real baseball question: <laughs> How many how many starts do you expect Oscar Tavares to make this year? Oof. 
it's funny, I would have gotten this so wrong last year too. So, you know, I think that the, the assumption, you know, if he hadn't have been hurt, you know, he, he was hurt all of last year, but the, even until August, even you thought he was coming, you still thought he was going to come in and be a, a, a bat until they finally shut him down. So he, you know, he, he did play in his first uh, uh, simulated game yesterday. Uh, so he's, he's starting to come back a little bit. I still feel like it's going to be, I would be surprised to see him in the majors, frankly, at this point, it, it, barring if there's not an injury to Craig or or Adams, the, I think they may wait. <laughs> they may wait. I mean, he hasn't really played a full season in AAA. You know, like he's not like like he's not really like everyone knows he's going to be great, but like he hasn't. There's still time for a guy that we thought was going to be up, up up last year and wasn't. There's still some stuff he probably needs to prove a little bit in the minors. So I can see them holding off for a while. Uh, all told, expecting him to, I would be surprised. If he plays a hundred games, to be honest, I would be surprised if he has a hundred major league games this year. So, uh, as I continue to grasp at straws in search of a weak spot here, um, we were kind of critical of of Mike Matheny's managing last year. You also wrote some stuff about how he was sort of learning on the job. It seemed like in the playoffs, um, obviously that that didn't prevent the Cardinals from you know going to the NLCS and winning a World Series under him. Um, but he was extended through 2017 this winter. Are you at all concerned about his his ability in a big game still, or is it something where you've seen a progression and you expect him to continue to get better? There has definitely been a progression. Uh, I think there, there were still, I, I feel like game four, he really made some mistakes in game four of the World Series this year, but there, it, it, there was a lot less frustration uh, with him last year than there was in his in his first season. He was very, very bunty. He was very bunty his first year. And uh, and I think that a lot of that, frankly, I think Mose Lot got in his ear. You know, one of the things that's nice uh, about Matheny in, in the wake of the, of the La Russa era is he doesn't seem like, you know, he doesn't seem to push for his kind of guys. You know, one of the big frustrations with La Russa, I think the major strength of Matheny is he trusts playing young players. And La Russa never did that, even when he had great ones. I mean, he basically not, we, we found out that Rasmus is still not the most uh, predictable guy uh, and reliable guy, even when he's had, when he's had uh, good years uh, since he left St. Louis. But La Russa was never going to give a guy like that a chance. He really, he, La Russa was constantly upset that not every rookie was as poised as Pujols. Like it, he seemed to have that, and Matheny's not like that. Matheny loves putting uh, putting putting rookies and and young guys in good situations, which is great because the Cardinals have a lot of those. So to me, that that may, that is enough of a strength and enough of frankly an improvement on Larusa. I feel like game management wise, Larusa is is better than Matheny, but you know that only comes up in October. Like I, my Matheny, I think is is I try not to micromanage a lot of Matheny stuff during the regular season because. He's not so obtrusive that he's getting in. He's not in the way the way I think he was in 2012. I think last year he he I think he generally guided them pretty well and trusted those young players to do a great job. There were some issues, frankly, in in the World Series, but you know there are. I've I've really yet to find a lot of uh, that's kind of what we do in the postseason. We always find reasons to be mad at moves that managers did. So right. the idea the idea that uh, like uh, every other manager in the in the postseason last year was golden. <laughs> but Matheny made some mistakes. Like, this is what we do. We second guess these guys all the time. So I think that uh, certainly there was some frustration with some of the moves. I think he gets a little scared in the in the playoffs. He's he's weirdly passive sometimes, uh, and uh, and that kind of trust the guy to get himself out of stuff that work that makes him such an effective regular season manager. Sometimes it's frustrating uh, in the postseason. He's very much a trust his guys. Uh, guy, which is great for the postseason, frustrating in, in the uh, great for the regular season, frustrating in the postseason. But I still, uh, I, I feel like the difference between him in 2003 and 2012, of uh, 2013 and 2012, was substantial. Like he was a better manager, and mm-hmm. uh, and I can see that continuing to happen. So, uh, what do you do to kind of keep this run in perspective or or cherish it? Have you like hired a Twins fan to follow you around and <laughs> whisper Memento Mori in your ear? Or like, do you look at Anthony Reyes's baseball reference page before you go to bed at night? How do you how do you continue to to make this special or or not, I guess, internalize the feeling that it will last forever? Well, certainly, you know what? I mean, frankly, you know, they've they've had been in good positions. They haven't won the World Series last couple of years. It's been like two years. man. (laughs) So um, but no, I think there, there is something to the idea. One kind of motivating thing, I think, uh, to 
to keep Cardinal fans hungry. We'd like to win one in a post La Russa, uh, post Pujols uh, type of era. I feel like, like if you even look at that 2011 team uh, that won the World Series, a it came out of nowhere, but b it was not really this set of guys. Like, like already there's been such a dramatic. Like to watch game to watch the 2011 watch the game six 2011 World Series. Most of those guys are gone. Like it already feels like a different team in a lot of ways. So you know, for me, you know, it, it's when you when you love a team as as anybody knows. Like when you love a team, you follow them all the time. Like you are kind of in the tunnel of loving your team and watching them. So it, I I remember when all the the backlash came against the Cardinals uh, and and their fans. I suppose last year, like my I'm, I think it was actually more two years ago when we first saw it. It was more intense last year. Uh, it, there was this like surprise that like wait no like we you guys hate us now because you're in that bubble you don't realize that like wait when you win a lot people don't like you anymore they want you to stop and uh, but you never see that way you know you never you never think that your kid is getting too many A's and he needs to stop so like you never like I need to I need to not take these A's for granted like you always just want your kid to get A's mm -hmm. so you know I feel like uh, the notion of the it, the fact is, I'm still as I think any fan would be. I'm really disappointed the Cardinals didn't win the World Series last year, and I'm really disappointed they didn't beat the Giants two years ago. So I think that uh, every year is its own kind of uh, uh, journey and its own kind of uh, experience. So the, certainly things are going well, and things are continuing to go well, and I love. To me, just having grown-ups in charge and seeing seeing people willing to make the tough moves and to make the tough decisions, I, that's an exciting thing. That's have There have been years where that's not been the case for the Cardinals, and I think not been the case for a lot of teams. So it's nice to have that, but, you know, come on. You, when you root for a team, you want them to win the World Series every year. Why wouldn't you? So I, I to me, until... Uh, it, it, they haven't won the World Series in a couple of years, and so I'm antsy. I I want this kind of historic. No, I'm serious. I want this. Like they've got all this young talent. I want them to win a World Series with it because uh, it would feel like a waste otherwise. So it's certainly enough of a motivation to keep you moving on. All right. Well, uh, I want two predictions from you. I want to know how many wins they're going to have this year, and I want to know if there's any team that you would bet on ahead of them to win the World Series this year. I would say I think they're looking at uh, 94. That sounds about right. They actually kind of underperformed a little bit last year. I, uh, they, I think they were under their their Pythag a, a little bit, even with the 97 wins. Um, I 94 sounds about right. I because I think the Cubs are going to be better. I think people are maybe a little bit too down on the Pirates just because they didn't make a lot of moves. You know, so I still think the Pirates are going to be like I. I don't know if they're, they're going to win as many games they did last year, but I feel like the Pirates are still going to be good. The Reds are still going to be good. I feel like I don't think the Brewers. The Brewers are. In enough denial about what they probably need to do to fix their franchise that they're going to continue to kind of they're going to be a little better than I think people think this year too. I think the division is still going to be good, so I don't see them like running out to some uh, uh, 100 wins. Even though I think this team, your team, is probably better than last year's team. Um, but uh, World Series wise, I have to say I would probably, if I had to predict, I would probably say this year's World Series will be Boston and St. Louis again, which will be very wonderful for everyone who was scowling <laughs> at that series last year. Can I add a third prediction? Uh, what what do you think the next losing season for the Cardinals will be? Um, I it's hard to see one happening in the next three or four years. I think mm -hmm. that uh, it, I, I, it is. It's just hard, it's hard to see that happening. You never know what's going to happen after that, though. I mean, like one of the things when you have all these young young players all debuting at the same time is they get all expensive at the same time. And also, you know, you forget that, like, yeah, they do have a lot of young pitching, but. Young pitching gets hurt. Like Michael Walker hasn't really gotten hurt yet. Miller Miller had a minor league injury, but like these guys are injuries eventually happen. They just do. And so the the idea that that uh, uh, every time the the future looks limitless and and you know and it's spread out before you and you're you're going to win everything. It's that it, that tends not to happen. I feel like they still, you know, everything has fallen right and everything's put in the right the right direction, but. You know, it's already, you know, the lower level of the minors don't have the level of prospects that they've been putting out the last couple of years. They still have to, like, kind of rebuild that. And frankly, so much of this was done by Jeff Luna, who's not that, not there anymore. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that, you know, the, the, the notion that, like, oh, they're just going to keep coming up with these prospects uh, and these 100-mile-an-hour arms and uh, guys they picked in the 53rd round that hit, like, they could hit 30 homers at first base, they, they assuming those guys are going to keep going, the guy that picked most of those guys is gone. And uh, I think Mosaic is a smart guy, and, and they've got a good staff in there. But, you know, they, they have yet to show 
Uh, how could they? It's been so soon. But they haven't shown that they can have the drafting prowess that Luno has. And so, uh, until they do, it could be – It could be. Uh, I, but I still think it'll be like four or five years. There's enough young talent that uh, running through for a while. But they still have to replenish those lower levels, and they, they haven't done that yet. All right. Uh, so everyone can go read some further thoughts on the Cardinals by Will in this year's Baseball Prospectus Annual. Uh, he is a senior writer on Sports on Earth, so you can read him over there. You can listen to his daily sports podcast on iTunes or at Sports on Earth, the Will Leach Experience. Uh, and if you want to follow the, the Cardinals' continuing quest to get over the hump and win that World Series already, <laughs> uh, you can follow him on Twitter at William F. Leach, L-E-I-T-C-H. Uh, so thanks, Will. Of course. Thanks for having me. And please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com, subscribe to the Play Index, use the coupon code BP to get a $6 discount on a one-year subscription. And now Nick will talk to Kevin Wheeler. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm speaking here with Kevin Wheeler of 101 ESPN in St. Louis. How's it going, Kevin? Fantastic. Baseball's right around the corner, Nick, so I'm fired up. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited. Uh, the past three years, the Cardinals have won the World Series, lost in the NLCS, then lost in the World Series. Compared to the two previous years, what made last year's team stand out to you? What was their greatest strength and their area most in need of improvement? I think the area that they could improve the most in this year, Nick, is probably hitting the ball over the fence. Mm-hmm. Um they were they had an inordinate batting average for runners in scoring position last year. I would assume that that's going to come back to earth a little bit. But I would also suspect that a lot of these guys that, that normally hit more home runs than they did will do that. I would expect, to, for example, Alan Craig to hit more home runs than he did mm-hmm. last year. Um, and Matt Adams is capable now that he's going to be an everyday player, barring some kind of complication, uh, that he'll be a guy that can hit a fair number of home runs. And what was interesting last year, and I actually had a chance uh, on a number of occasions to talk about this with Mike Matheny, it wasn't just the Cardinals' home run production that dipped at Bush Stadium last year. Everybody did. Huh. Every team that came in there faced a reduced home run rate. We really couldn't figure it out. The only thing we could come up with is that last summer was far cooler than it had been in any of the previous summers. You know, the summer of 2012, we had this stretch of like 19 days where it was 100 degrees. <laughs> you know, that, that, it's not typically that hot. But, you know, St. Louis in, in June, July, August is, is pretty it, hot. It gets 95 hot degrees every day. Last summer wasn't like that. The uh-huh. average temperature was down quite a bit. So I'll be really curious to see what happens this year because we, we talked about this, and by we I mean like the whole group of us that covered the Cardinals. And last year uh, I was working for their flagship and doing the pregame show and postgame show for their games and hosting the manager show every week. And this is a subject that came up a lot. And I think the best explanation we could all come up with was that it had something to do with the temperature or the barometric pressure or some kind of weather-related issue. So I'll be interested to see if that if that changes this year. Yeah, it usually takes a little while for park effects like that to stabilize once there's actually been a real change in how the park will play. Yeah, and, and you know, it, you know, usually Bush Stadium's kind of middle of the road, maybe slightly favors pitchers. It, it's not an unfair park for hitters. I mean, good hitters put up good numbers. You look at Matt Holiday over the years, you look at Albert Pujols when he was here. You know, there's, there's never been a park that's been prohibitive to good hitters doing their thing, but last year was strange. And, and again, I would have no question about the weather or anything like that if it had only been the Cardinals that had flipped. But when you track the numbers of the opposing teams and the, and the home run rate being down for visiting teams in that ballpark, too, uh, I, you know, it's the best explanation we could come up with. And who knows? Maybe, Nick, maybe it was just a fluke. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and we'll find out this summer if that was the case. Last year, Matt Carpenter followed up a strong rookie season with an even better performance over a full year. He led all second baseman in batting average and on-base percentage and finished second only to Robbie Cano in slugging percentage. The Cardinals signed him to a six-year, $52 million extension that will buy out his first two years of free agency with an option on the third year. Um, one notable factor about Carpenter is that he's already 28 years old, so this extension should, should keep in, him in St. Louis for most of his prime. He'll be moving over to third base with Colton Wong filling in at second after David Freeze left. Um, how do you think Carpenter will be able to handle that position, and what do you expect from him over the duration of that contract? Well, you know, the, the most fascinating thing about Matt Carpenter is that what we saw last year and what we saw in his, in his kind of part-time duty in 2012 mm-hmm. is exactly what you saw from him every year in the minor leagues. He was the same guy. I mean, you go back to 2010, most of his year at Double A. He was a 900 OPS, a 400 on-base percentage, and 
you know, had the requisite high number of doubles and walks and, you know, a fair number of home runs, but nothing that would blow you away. And 2011 was pretty much the same thing at AAA, and then 2012 and 2013. I mean, this is what he is, uh, offensively speaking. Now, defensively, he's a natural third baseman. Uh, mm. That's the position he played in college. That's what he played coming up in the minors. And it wasn't until 2012, in fact, the spring of 2012, where they said, you know, we've got to get this guy back in the lineup. Let's see if he can play left field. Let's see if he can play right field. Let's see if he can play first base. And then the last spring it was, we'd like to see if this guy can play second base. So he can play five positions, but third is his natural. So I don't think there will be much of an adjustment for him going back there. And, you know, offensively speaking, I think I just kind of laid it out there. I mean, this guy is going to be something similar to what he was last year. I wouldn't predict, you know, MVP candidate again. I wouldn't predict 55 doubles and all of that. But, I mean, his track record is pretty consistent both in the majors and the minors. He's been this guy for the last five or six years. It's pretty nice to have guys like that just hanging out in AAA. Yeah, you know, he's a guy coming out of TCU that was a fifth-year senior. You know, he wasn't really viewed as a big-time prospect. But at that time, the Cardinals were targeting. And we go back to, you know, the 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009 drafts. They were targeting advanced college players that could reach the majors relatively quickly. They had a big void in the minor leagues at that time of players that were going to be able to help out at the big league level within a year or two. And even if it was just utility players, and that was a st- that stretch they drafted in that range, you know, Lance Lynn and Daniel Descalso, uh, Pete Cosmo was somewhere in there, obviously, but he was a high school guy, so he was a little different. But obviously Matt Carpenter fell into that. And, you know, Carpenter's been one of those underrated players pretty much his entire career. You know, you don't see too many top prospect guys that have this ability to play five years in college. Yeah. Uh, so Colton Wong, who will be replacing Carpenter at second base, he had a difficult time in the World Series. He got picked off at first base to end game four. Really tough situation for such a young guy. His team's loss by, was by no means his fault. They only had a 4% chance of winning the game prior to that play, but it's just such a memorable yeah. blunder that everyone suddenly knew his name. Uh, he definitely has some talent. He, I saw him play in the Futures game last year. Uh do you think he'll be able to bounce back and prove himself in a full-time role? And how much leeway are they going to give him if he's struggling? Oh, I think as long as the team's playing well, they'll ride him. You know, that's something that they've done with other young players in the past, too. It really is all dependent upon the team. If they're in first place and they're winning games, well, they'll let him try to hit his way out of any slump that he runs through. Uh, if they're struggling, then they might try to shake it up a little bit. That's one thing they have the flexibility to do with, with Matt Carpenter's ability to move around with Mark Ellis in camp. Uh, so, you know, they have a lot of ways that they can kind of play things. But assuming the team is playing at its level, they'll give him every opportunity. And, and it's funny, he's not exactly the same guy that I described with Matt Carpenter mm-hmm. because he was not unheralded. I mean, he was a first-round draft pick coming out yeah. of college and, you know, was pretty highly thought of. But if you look at him every year, he's the same guy. He's the same guy. I mean, he's a, you know, he's, he's a lot of doubles, a few home runs. He'll steal some bases. He draws some walks. He's not elite at any one of those things. He's just pretty good at all of them. And at A ball, double A, he skipped high A entirely. You know, low A, double A, triple A. He's the same guy every year. And, you know, I know there are a lot of fans in St. Louis that, you know, have a lot of doubts about him because, not because of the pickoff play. That's just, I think that's just symbolic of how his second half of the season went last year. But he didn't hit very much when he was in the big league last Mm -hmm. year. I think like nine for 59 or something along those lines. But I think it's important to note, too, that this was a player who was young and was put into a utility role for the first time in his life. You know, it's not like he got a chance to come up and play on an everyday basis for three or four weeks and did 10. Yeah. No, he'd play a game here, and then he'd sit for a few games, and then he'd pinch hit. And that's not something that he was used to. It's not, and I think it's unfair to judge a guy by those standards. The one thing that worries me about Colt, and, you know, fortunately, Nick, I've had a chance to see a lot of him in spring training and talk to him a good bit. He's a great guy. He's, he's very intense, maybe a little too hard on himself, and that, that could be the one thing that worries me. But from a pure baseball standpoint, he's got a great approach. He's got a short, compact swing. He's got more power than you think he does. You know, he's, he's 5'9 and listed at 185. I bet he's 10 pounds heavier than that. He's really put together very well. He's not uh, skinny or, or, or uh, you know, lacking in, in strength in any way, shape, or form. He's got some pop. And, you know, he's got a, a very good, balanced approach. So as long as he's not too hard on himself and as long as the team is winning, I think you'll see him have a pretty good rookie year. Peter Burjos will provide some much-needed uh, help in center field defense after coming over from the Angels. How excited are you to 
see what he can do on the field and in the base paths. And do you think he'll get a chance to hit at the top of the lineup? That's a great question. He's going to have to earn that. Uh, the Cardinals value that on-base skill at the top. That's why Matt Carpenter batted league off last year, and I'm sure that, that Matt Carpenter is going to be up there this year. And, and, you know, the spot that seems to be open for rotation is that number two spot. Uh, you know, there's some talk that Johnny Peralta could hit there every mm-hmm. once in a while, maybe Colton Wong, depending on how he does. One thing the Cardinals have emphasized for years, and this goes back to, to Tony La Russa, too, is having a little danger in that two-hole. And that's where you saw Carlos Beltran hit a lot last year, actually the last couple years, for that matter. So they're not afraid to put a guy like Peralta up there in the two-spot that, that can knock the ball out of the park. But uh, I think, you know, Borges has a chance to do that if he can show an ability to get on base or if he can do something that makes them think that he's not just going to be, uh, you know, a, a 290 on base guy or something along those lines. I happen to be a big fan of Borges, I think. He's got offensive ability that, that doesn't match his defensive ability, but, you know, it, it's still something to be concerned about if you're an opposing team. You go back to the one healthy year he had, I mean, he was a, an, an extra base threat. Not necessarily a big home run hitter, but, you know, he'll hit double digits in homers, maybe double digits in triples, and double digits in, in doubles if he can play enough games. And, you know, with him, that's been the biggest question mark. But I know everybody's excited to see him. Probably everybody except John Jay, to be completely honest. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, I haven't been down to spring training this year, but in watching some of the games that have been broadcast, Jay looks a little slimmer than he has in the past and looks like he's trying to compete as much as he can to keep some at bat. So I think that competition will work out good for both of them. It'll definitely be an interesting situation with Jay, um, especially now that Alan Craig is back in the mix. He had missed all of September with that foot injury, came back for yeah. a little time during the World Series. Uh, Matt Adams had proved that he could really be an everyday first baseman. Got a little more time against lefties in, in September when Craig was injured. Um, still, I'd imagine that they want to li- limit him to that this year. Craig Craig can play right if they want to have Adams and Craig at the lineup at the same time. Obviously, that leaves Jay out of the mix. So, what do you think? How, how do you think those three guys will split those two positions this year? Well, I think uh, barring days of rest or maybe that extreme case where you're facing Clayton Kershaw and you want to uh-huh. give Adams a day off because of that, I think you're going to see Craig and Adams every day. Yeah. I mean, just flat out. And, you know, depending on matchups and how the guys are performing, I think center field is where you might see some rotation with Jay and Borges. Although I will say, again, on that day that, you know, that uh, you see Matt Adams take a break, for example, that may be the day you see Craig slide into first and Jay play right field. Yeah. Uh, but that could also be an opportunity for other guys to, to get into the lineup, too. I mean, they're going to have some guys on the bench that they want to get some looks at um, as well. And that depends on who makes the team and how they want to rotate that. But one thing Mike Matheny will do is get creative with guys. If somebody's banged up, for example, you know they have a chance with the flexibility that they have now to move guys around quite a bit. So I think most of it will be Craig and Adams. And you know, I know John Mozeliak talked about it a lot, even, even at the end of the regular season last year and even in the postseason. That he'd be, he's very excited to see what Matt Adams could do with 500 at bats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if the GM is thinking that way, I have a feeling the manager's mm-hmm. probably thinking that way. So you may see some lefty platoon, but only if he struggles and only against the better guys. Yeah, I would imagine, yeah, maybe a little bit of the, of the lefty platoon with Adams, maybe a little bit trying to keep Craig healthy. He has had just so many. Absolutely. Injuries. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. They're, you know, they, and they did that with Beltron a lot last year, mm-hmm. too. That, They'll manage the guys that they think need to be managed. And, you know, they want to keep their bench players sharp, too. And, you know, with Descalso and, and, and Ellis in the infield and, you know, Shane Robinson and John Jay in the outfield as projected backups, you've got four guys that have been pretty pretty good contributors for the last few years. So they want to keep those guys sharp, too. I really like Ellis as an addition to that uh, utility spot. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, it gives you the insurance policy in case uh. long struggles. uh you know, again, going back to that, that lefty thing, Mark Ellis hits lefties. Mm-hmm. You take his numbers mm-hmm. the last couple of years, his numbers against lefties are phenomenal, and against righties, not very good. Well, if, again, you go up against a Kershaw or you're going up against, any other, let's say, Singrani from the Reds, now that he's entrenched in their rotation, mm-hmm. now you've got a chance to pick a spot where, okay, Wong's going to need days off anyway. Now you're going to get a productive player in there. That was a huge, huge pickup for them. And, you know, I think that not only is he a veteran guy, but with him and with Descalso, they've got, you know, lefty-righty infielders who can move around quite a bit, give you flexibility. And with Ellis, I think you, you also get that little hunger. You know, he's a veteran guy that's never won. So I think that's something that always gets a guy kicking the pants. 
Their other more significant signing in the infield was when they signed Johnny Peralta to a four-year, $53 million deal. He had not been extended a qualifying offer by Detroit, so they were able to sign him without losing a draft pick. How big of a difference do you think that made for how aggressive the Cardinals were in pursuing Peralta? Do you think he is the right, the right guy to step in at short for the next few years? Well, at least for this year, he is. And beyond that, I, I think, you know, given the way the Cardinals kind of take things year by year, who knows? You know, they did sign Aledmi Diaz not that long ago, yeah. and if he's what they think he is, then, then maybe Peralta gets pushed off of there. Then again, the good thing with Peralta is he's shown in the major leagues that he can play left field and third base. So if you need to move things around, there is that flexibility. But for now, you know, I, I just back in the last couple of weeks, last week I had a chance to talk to Jim Leland. He was visiting uh, Cardinals spring training camp and it was nice enough to come on nice. uh, my radio show and we want Peralta's name comes up because he managed Peralta and he's got nothing but great things to say about him. He said, look, he's not going to make a lot of those Ozzie Smith, you know, diving plays to his left and to his right. He's not covering a ton of ground, but he makes every play that he gets to. He's got a strong, accurate arm, turns a good double play. And when you factor in the improved range at third, because Matt Carpenter's a much better defensive player than David Fries was, especially when it comes to covering ground. Mm-hmm. And Colton Wong is a better second baseman than Matt Carpenter was. So you're covering more ground in those two positions. Maybe you can afford to cover a little less with your shortstop as long as he's going to provide the kind of offense that he has the last few years. And, you know, if he does that, if he's anything close to what he was last year before his suspension, the Cardinals will be thrilled with that contract. It's just so interesting looking at Peralta's defensive numbers. He was really not a good defensive shortstop for his last few years with the Indians before they moved him over to third base. And then all of a sudden he gets thrown back into the mix with the Tigers and he's an above average shortstop. Yeah, and you know, I, I have a couple things. I mean, ballparks play into that. You know, the, the thickness of the grass. You know, how much a ball slows down as it's going through the infield, and everybody kind of handles their own things differently on that regard. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, when I get into discussions about defense, I have a hard time measuring defense through any of the metrics that are used because there are a lot of those things that can't be factored in, like velocity off the bat. I mean, not coincidentally, Nicky goes to a team with a bunch of strikeout pitchers, and all of a sudden he looks better defensively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's got Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander yeah. and Anibal Sanchez blowing guys away. Well, he doesn't have as many balls in play. And, and you know, some of it goes to the coaches that are positioning them defensively, too. So if they had better advanced scouting or, you know, the guy, I think it's Ronnie Belliard that did the infield for Detroit, if he was better at putting him in the right position, well, he could look better even though he's the same guy. And that's why the Cardinals are okay with this, because Jose Oquendo, their infield instructor, is one of the best in the business, not only at helping players with the mechanics of, of, of infield play, but also with positioning and you know, kind of giving them tips on trends, not only trends on opposing hitters, but on their own pitchers too. So I have a feeling it'll work out okay. He won't be great by any stretch, but he doesn't need to be great. He just has to be something, uh, something better than terrible at shortstop, and as long as he hits. If he doesn't hit, then you got a whole different argument. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely relies on that bat. Uh, it's always fun to it's always fun when new stats come out that reinforce things that you see on the field and hear about from players, but couldn't previously actually put a number on and really measure and compare across players. Uh, Baseball Prospectus recently re- released some new catcher defense metrics that measure a player's value blocking pitches in the dirt and framing pitches to get additional called strikes. By those metrics, Yadier Molina has been worth a total of 130 runs above average since 2008, averaging about 18 runs per season. Um, lots of people see these types of stats for catchers and think they're kind of on the extreme, but it seems like they're pretty believable for Molina, right? They're believable in general. and I was fortunate enough to help Dan Brooks out with that. Yeah. I was kind of like the blind guy giving well, – the blind guy, the blind, the blind test group where I gave up – I gave some – in addition to being a radio host, I'm a yeah. former catcher and, and uh-huh. uh, I, I'm a baseball instructor and instruct catchers in the St. Louis area. And you know, I, I have the opportunity based on my two jobs to be at the ballpark a lot. So I see every one of these guys on a regular basis. And I know that I'm probably somewhat biased because I see Molina a lot. You know, I mean, yeah. there's just no way to get around it. That's the great thing about what Baseball Prospectus is trying to do, what Dan Brooks is trying to do, uh, what John Dewan is trying to do, is to, to take some of that out. Because, you know, the balance between subjective and objective is where you're going to get the best information to get mm-hmm. the balance of the two. So I know my eyes are used to seeing Molina, and I see it every day. So I know that there's some bias because I, I watch how it works. I listen to his teammates. I listen to Mike Matheny, and, and it's, it's interesting to see that the numbers back a lot of that up, and it's not surprising at all, because how long have you heard that people talk about the impact that certain catchers have on their teams? 
you know, the impact that they have on the pitching staff. And these are all things that are difficult to measure, but it's great that piece by piece we're trying. You know, it won't be, it won't be perfect. As I talked about with defense, there are things that can't be accounted for because, as an example, a veteran pitcher like Adam Wainwright is going to get a close call where a rookie pitcher might not. You know, we saw that with Maddox and Glavin and players. We've seen that for generations. And it can vary based on the hitter, too, right? I mean, yeah. if you've got a great hitter up there who's known for his keen eye, he might get the benefit of that call. So it's a difficult game. But the one thing that doesn't change is the guy behind the plate receiving the ball. And I found it interesting to see that a lot of what, what I saw and what Rob Bowen, the former major league catcher who also contributed on this, what we see with our own naked eye, is very similar to the, what the numbers came up with. So I think that was fascinating. What do you look at when you're trying to evaluate a catcher's ability to frame and to and to block pitches? Well, it's it's uh, the, the simplest way to look at it is you want if, if, if it looks easy, they're probably doing a good job. Yeah. Because the, the, the less movement there is, less there is to distract an umpire and put that little bit of doubt in his head. So framing pitches, you know, I, I teach when I teach kids, I ask them a simple question: What does a frame do? What does a frame do for a picture? It holds it in place and it makes it look better. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that simple, and that's what you're trying to do to that pitch. You're not trying to move it. You're not, you know, you may move your body so that you're you're kind of making the pitch appear to be a little bit more over the plate or more centered to your body than it than it is. But everything needs to be subtle. Everything needs to be kind of in small movement. And when you watch the better guys, you know, Yadier Molina, his brother Jose, um, Russell Martin, uh, Jonathan Lucroy, these these guys are fantastic. And you know, the old school catching instructors will tell you that they're just quiet. You know, when they it's, it's, they have quiet movements when they're receiving, and obviously soft hands is very helpful. Uh, and that just means that, you know, the ball's not jumbling around when it hits their glove. It means that when it goes in the glove, it stays in the glove. Uh, and, you know, when you watch for subtle things like how they react to a pitch that's the opposite side of the plate. So if they set up inside, the pitcher misses to the outside portion of the plate, but well, it it's still a strike, and it's still yeah. up to the catcher to try to make that look like a strike. So if you go falling over yourself to try to catch that ball, even if it's a strike, you're not going to get the call. But if you do it the right way, if you if you make it look easy, if you're quiet about it, then you, you're probably still going to get that call, even though the pitcher missed his spot by the entire width of the plate. So the most important thing to look at when it comes to the receiving is is that, is head movement, make sure you know they, they see the ball go into their glove, all these technical details. But mostly if it looks easy, they're probably doing a good job. Yeah, the one thing that we don't really, we can't really incorporate into those statistics yet is um, where the where the catcher is positioning their glove. There is there is a couple right. organizations that are tracking actually where the where the catcher's target is before the pitch and how that compares to where it is after the pitch, and that definitely makes a big difference for if you can get the strike call or not. Absolutely, and you know, anytime you have to reach over a large distance, it gets yeah. the attention of an umpire. Yeah. Uh, you know, how many times have you seen if you're off the plate just a little? You know, like say the center of your body, then you know your nose is just off the outside flag. Well, if the pitcher paints it and, and hits you right in the center of your body, a lot of times you're going to get that call. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where the opposite is true, if you're set up out there and he misses over the inside half, even if it's a strike, sometimes you're going to you're not going to get that yeah. call. So yeah, that pre-pitch positioning, and that's kind of the, the fun stuff about looking at defense in general too. It, it kind of ties into what we were talking about with Johnny Peralta. Part of what makes measuring that defense difficult through numbers is. A lot of what is done pre-pitch in terms of positioning can determine the outcome of the play, and the play itself may look relatively ordinary. Uh, but you know that that it may it may not have been otherwise without that added help. And with with catchers, it's a little bit more difficult to do unless you're looking at that overhead shot. You know the camera that shoots straight down over home plate. Mm -hmm. and that's probably your best bet at getting the look. But I don't like you said, it's not a, like a readily available number that you just look up. So, over on the pitching side of things, Michael Waka had a pretty exciting uh, debut in the majors last year. He did rely primarily on that fastball changeup combination. Do you think he'll make any adjustments to his pitch repertoire as he tries to survive a full season? Absolutely. I mean, you, you even saw in the playoffs last year, uh, Molina was making him throw the curveball every once mm -hmm. in a while. Even if it wasn't going to be a great pitch, even if it was going to bounce or it was going to be you know, out, off the plate, wants to put that in hitter in hitters' heads. I know that he's working on the the uh, on the breaking ball down in, in spring training this year, uh, and he had that pitch in 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 the, in, the, in college too. And this was kind of the report that he had the big fastball, had the great changeup, but the breaking ball was still a pitch that that was developing. And last year it was probably at best an average pitch. And I would say this year it'll, you'll see more of it. it. It'll be a better than average pitch. 
And if that happens, to go along with you know the, the great fastball, which is not just great because of velocity, but because of the angle and the movement. I mean, this is a guy that has the ball that comes straight over the top of his head, and he's six foot six. So it's being released about six seven, six six feet ten inches, maybe seven feet up off the ground, and it's diving straight down toward your shins as a hitter. That angle is tough, and you know it's something that that Malump, that Yadi has talked a lot about. Like Matheny, the first week or two of spring training last year, said, "Wow, I mean, the, the tilt is the word that they like to use. The mm. tilt on that fastball is difficult." So you combine that with the killer changeup and a developing breaking ball. I think there's no reason to think that this kid can't continue to get better. And the one thing that's most impressive about Michael Locke is he's just so calm. Nothing bothers him. I mean, I, I, the day that he signed with the Cardinals, Nick, I, he was at Bush Stadium and had a chance to grab him for a quick interview for our pregame show that day. He couldn't have been more calm. Here he is, a guy straight out of college. He was literally a week from being on a college campus. Here in a major league ballpark, having thrown a bullpen in front of Dave Duncan and Tony Larusa, having met Adam Wainwright and Chris Carpenter, doing a radio interview, and he couldn't have been more calm. He couldn't have been more at ease with everything. And he's very much like Adam Wainwright in terms of his personality. And that's why I think that when, when you look at some of the young pitchers, it's difficult to know whether or not a guy's going to get hurt. I mean, you know, you know pitchers are going to get hurt, but what, what you can tell a little bit about a guy is how they're going to handle everything. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, he's a guy that's going to handle it by trying to work to get better. And, and you saw in the playoffs, did pressure seem to bother him? Didn't, didn't seem to bother him when I was watching him. He's pretty pretty calm, and guys like that tend to tend to be okay. And you'll see that with some of those elite guys. I mean, Steven Strasburg brings, I think, that kind of confidence where no matter what, when he's on the mound, he's not worried about what's going on. He's not worried about what's happening around him because he knows he's good enough. And Waka has that with that little dose of humility. So I think you'll see him take – I'll forget numbers. I don't know what they'll say, but I think you'll see him be even better this year than he was last year. Another interesting guy to watch is Carlos Martinez. Um, what kind of role do you think he'll have this year? That's a great question. I mean, talent-wise, he's easily one of their five best starters. I mean, yeah. he, he's probably talent-wise, he might be their third best starter. Mm-hmm. You know, he's probably well. That's a tough call. That's Maybe tough, yeah. four, <laughs> because you know, Shelby Miller is incredibly talented. Yeah. Adam Wainwright and Michael Walker. So he's 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 more gifted than Lance Lynn and more gifted than Joe Kelly. But he's also really young, and they are going to want to monitor his workload a little bit this year. He didn't pitch mm-hmm. a ton of innings last year because he had to beat the problems early on. Uh, so I think my bet would be that you'll see him in the bullpen early, and then if it turns out later in the year they think they'll need him as a starter, they probably send it down for a couple of weeks to build up some innings, and then he comes in later on. Because you can accomplish a mul- multiple goals there, and, it, and I know it didn't work out great for Chris Medlin because he's facing another surgery, but yeah. if you look at how the Braves handled him that first year back, and being careful with him in the pen, and then working him in as a starter later—that that may be how it goes. And and I, you know, the, the nice thing for the Cardinals is no matter what they decide, th- these guys are all so good they'll find they can find a way to make it work. Yeah, we've talked about the various luxuries of having the Cardinals type of depth and getting quality relief innings out of someone who is just by just trying to limit how much they pitch is a pretty good thing. Yeah, I you know they did that with Waka last year. Yeah. He pitched a little bit out of the pen. He, you know, he he started every sixth day in AAA for a while there. You know, they they did everything they could so that if they needed him to start and be a like, carry a full workload in September and obviously into the postseason, he'd be capable of doing it, and it worked. I'd be I'd be shocked if they deviated from what worked with with Carlos Martinez. And you know, there's another variable in there too is what's going to happen with Jaime Garcia. Mm-hmm. So if, total unknown right now. I mean. He's he's just starting to throw again, and we have no idea what he's going to be or how he's going to be. But he's still another variable in this mix. That if he's healthy, the contract that he has, he's going to probably be starting. So with those guys, you know, with Kelly and Lynn and and Martinez, it probably makes sense early in the year to go with Martinez as your your power guy late in the game. Yeah. And you know, see what happens as the season goes along. Yeah. Well, even if you start with six pitchers, it's quite possible that you'll need someone later in the season. That's well, I mean, they went through a ton last year. Yeah. All of these guys that we see now, they, they weren't really forecast to be part of the team last year. Nobody really expected Michael Walker to play a big role last year. I mean, he was his first year of professional baseball, or first full year. So, you know, it's funny. These seasons have a way of kind of unfolding in unexpected <laughs> ways. So even when you think you have a lot of depth, it's funny, we, you know, first couple of days of pitchers and catchers last spring, we kept talking to Mike Matheny about the depth. Man, you got a lot of arms here. He's like, Let's just hope we don't have to put it to use. Well, they did. 
they had to put it to use and it worked. But you don't want to try to do that again. You don't have to. All right, well, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show, Kevin. No problem, Nick. Anytime. And really enjoy the work you guys do. And looking forward to uh, hearing the rest of some of these previews. All right. That was Kevin Wheeler of ESPN 101 in St. Louis. You can listen to Kevin at 101sports.com or follow him on Twitter at KevinWheeler94. Join us tomorrow when we'll be discussing the Oakland Athletics. Thanks for listening. Hang on. I'm in a hotel room. I'm going to go put the Do Not Disturb sign on the door. Just to make sure. Hang on <laughs> okay. a second. Every time I put a do not disturb sign on the door, I, I, I want to like when they come in after when people come, finally come into the room after I leave, I want to be like, listen, no, I wasn't like having sex. I was just working. <laughs> <laughs> leave, yeah. Leave another note. You have to have they have to have two notes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Garcia got hurt. And uh, hold on, just hold on. Hang on. He was disturbed after all. Yeah. No one respects the "do not disturb" sign. I know. Sorry about that. Do you think that? Do you think they were just? Do you think they were just checking to see if they could ha- uh, see you having sex? <laughs> they're like, they're like, I don't believe him. <laughs> <laughs>